all of the consumers out there are looking for a way to actually smile or have a healthy laugh or a healthy cry. (laughs) We provide that. And so I think it's incumbent on government officials, it's incumbent on our film partners and our distribution partners, and it's incumbent on ex- exhibition to ensure that we work together to make sure that this incredible art form that services all communities, that we actually stay in business and are able to thrive and cater to those consumers. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Russ Fisher, the editorial director of the Box Office Studios, which provides editorial content to movie theaters. And I'm joined by Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro Magazine. Now, this week, Daniel is going to be speaking to Rolando Rodriguez, who is the president and CEO of Marcus Theaters, which is the fifth largest circuit in the domestic market. And he's now also the new chairman of the National Association of Theater Owners. But before we get to that conversation, we have a lot to talk about because there has been a steady stream of news and changes going on in the industry over the past few days. Everything kind of began with, as I'm sure you know, the James Bond movie, No Time to Die, being pushed into 2021, which kind of spurred Cineworld slash Regal to close all of their screens in the US and the UK. And a number of other changes have followed from that. Daniel, beginning with that timeline, let's talk about where things stand right now. Well, obviously, that Bond movie completely took, I think, everyone by total surprise. We're talking about a change so late into the plans for theatrical release of the movie, that that massive global marketing machine associated with any James Bond title was already up and running. We had the music video for the theme song already up and and out there. We had long lead press coverage. Uh, You know, I just saw the cover for Total Film Magazine with with a very interesting spread on... uh, on Daniel Craig's new title in the James Bond franchise come out. So, Russ, a lot of those things were already in place. I've always compared changing the date of a James Bond movie to a little bit like changing the direction of a Frightliner, right? I mean, it's a 180-degree turn of this massive ship where you have to coordinate with luxury watch brands, luxury alcohol brands, cars, just all of these different things for it to make sense. And, you know, it was such a sudden decision that by the time the second shoe fell in this conversation, which was the Cineworld regal decision to close all of their U.S. and U.K. locations, we were just too caught up in the moment to sort of step back and really start to connect the dots on what was happening. Russ, on your end, what sort of surprised you from that move? What was the, the timeline for you as you found out about this news? I mean, it was, the whole thing was kind of shocking. You know, it feels like an action movie in real life, except it sucks. You know, the Bond movie changing dates, as you say, was a huge deal. And it really seemed to take everybody by surprise. And Cineworld's decision seemed to kind of follow directly from that. Like, I wonder if there had been more or different notice of No Time to Die changing dates if a company like Cineworld would have reacted differently. Obviously, we're never going to know that. they Things happen the way that they did. Cineworld very abruptly closed all of their screens. I mean, it, it was 
the thing that was, uh, you know, on what was it a Friday or it was a Saturday night that we heard that they might close. And by Monday, everything was pretty much uh, in place. And unfortunately, it wasn't just us who were finding out, you know, employees of those theaters found out pretty much in the same timeline that we did, which means that the jobs that they were assuming they were going to have over the coming weeks suddenly were uh, in doubt or, or simply gone, which is a very difficult thing for a lot of people. So the whole thing has been really quite, uh, I mean, yeah, it's a shock. There's no other way to, to put it. You know, it's interesting that, that you mentioned that the Cineworld action kind of taking us by surprise. I, I think that it was definitely my my first instinct as I was catching up to this story, which, you know, is as we start hearing rumors, uh, I'm shooting out email to our wonderful colleagues at, at Regal Press, uh, at the Regal Press office, Friday, Saturday night. Um, I, I didn't get anything confirmed until 2 a.m. Monday morning, to give you an example of, of how that, you know, waking up first thing on Monday morning was like. But that being said, this is sort of in line with the way that the Cineworld corporate culture has really sort of reacted to a couple of things uh, over the last couple of years. What I mean by that is that this is a company that is used to taking decisive action during pivotal moments that will affect their business. That happened when they acquired Regal a couple of years back. Shortly after acquiring Regal, I think the first CinemaCon under Cineworld Regal being one entity, they go out there with an announcement saying they're going to go all in on 4DX motion seating, putting a, a huge investment in sort of bringing a lot of these motion seating auditoriums into the United States. Again, a, a very sort of sudden announcement with decisive action. It happened when, uh, and, I, and I think we, we even talked about this when, when it happened in real time, Russ, when they dropped Coke for Pepsi. Same thing over a sort of like right. overnight decision, uh, the may, the second biggest exhibitor in the United States changing their software and company, that's something that has a big ripple effect in our industry. And I think it, it ultimately sort of displayed itself when by, to everyone's surprise, can you believe this was last year? It, I don't, I'm not even know, sure it's right? even been a year when Cineworld announces it's going to acquire Cineplex, the largest circuit in Canada the fourth largest in the North American market. And then acquiring Cineplex, it will become the largest exhibition circuit in the world. Something that Cineworld decides it's not doing anymore. And by the way, they're now <laughs> engaged in legal action in sort of uh, dissolving this mega merger between Cineworld and Cineplex. So again, this is a company that reacts in very bold, decisive ways the changes in the market. So in some ways, yes, it's extremely surprising, but in others for us, this is part of that Cineworld culture that takes really strong stances on, on things that they feel affect their bottom line. And of course, looming behind all of this, I have to bring it back to that, is the legacy of Trolls World Tour. <laughs> right. Trolls, uh, you, you know, when, when it's all said and done, I think we're all going to still be shaking our heads over the fact that Trolls World Tour is one of the decisive movies of 2020. I, it, it's, it's a film that will probably go into film history that has nothing to do with the film itself. In the history of exhibition, the impact of this title and the ripple effects it's had are still being felt today and might be felt in the industry for generations to come. I mean, without over-exaggerating the matter. So uh, backtracking the whole thing, Russ, can you lay out some of the, the main sort of 
building blocks of what happened after Universal decides to take Trolls World Tour directly to PVOD in April. Of course, going way back months, now feels like years, No Time to Die was, of course, the first major title to move because of the coronavirus. But then Universal's Trolls World Tour, which was set to be an Easter opening, exited its April 10th release and instead went to PVOD, where um, over this course of a couple of weeks, uh, according to Universal, it made more money than the original made in theaters. It was priced at uh, $19.99. And, you know, in a lot of ways, it was kind of a, I think for a lot of families, it was a novelty thing. It was like, oh, okay, we can see this big new movie at home when we are quarantined with our kids. Nobody has anything to do. Universal reaped immediate benefits from that, or so it seemed. That led to a great deal of ire on the point of uh, AMC. AMC said, okay, we're not going to play Universal movies ever again in our theaters, which I think we all knew was not the way it was going to shake out, given that Universal has movies like uh, Fast and the Furious 9 coming out now in 2021. And Adam Aaron, the CEO of AMC, admitted as such in 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 an call with investors uh, months later saying there, there's a, a little bit of a factor of, of sort of bluffing in that because there were negotiations underway that, that will come into shortly. AMC and Universal, of course, ultimately came to terms and what that uh, what those terms were was basically a deal in which Universal and AMC agreed that Universal could take new titles to PVOD within three weeks of their debut on movie screens. So these theatrical windows, which have been a, a point of contention between studios and exhibitors for years, suddenly were almost kind of unilaterally by AMC shrunk down to three weeks, which which is a huge deal with uh, ramifications that we're still only beginning to really see play out in the real world. And I, I think it's fair to say it, it's probably not that much of a coincidence that this deal whereby, and it's, it's crucial to add this, uh, yes. universal digital rentals, once they go into PVOD, a portion of those revenues go back to AMC theaters because of this agreement, because AMC basically has a sort of it's not a fine machine, not like a pioneer's bonus, <laughs> an early right. adopter bonus to sort of like breaking this theatrical window. Uh, we were always wondering, hey, you know, not only is a player in this industry doing something that most folks in this industry probably aren't ready to adopt, but they're also making money off of it, which is probably not going to rub their direct competitors in the US, in the UK and global market the right way. Lo and behold, guess who the number one competitor of AMC in the US, UK, and global (laughs) market is? And guess who is releasing No Time to Die and changed that release date of No Time to Die internationally, basically from morning to night. That's why I think Universal has a sort of looming presence around a lot of the things that we're seeing here. And specifically, the ripple effects and ramifications of that AMC Universal deal that, that you point out, Russ. We, we, we of course, uh, are, are saying this, sort of connecting the dots as we're reporting the story. I don't think we'd feel comfortable saying this until last week when we reached out to AMC for comment uh, based on the Cineworld Regal closures. The CEO of AMC, Adam Aaron, provided a quote saying, quote, fortunately for AMC, our groundbreaking agreement with Universal Studios announced earlier this summer 
puts AMC in a position where we can open our theaters when others may feel the need to close. We are fully comfortable showing universal films in our theaters, even as they implement premium video on demand, as we have mutually agreed. This is because AMC will share in premium revenues coming from their early availability in the home, end quote. And that is a quote coming as a response to another cinema chain closing, citing lack of content. So these things are sort of lining up. And as analysts here observing from the sidelines, there's a couple of coincidences here with some of the players uh, that we're seeing over and over again. And meanwhile, another major player, of course, is Disney. And uh, a few days ago, Disney pushed Soul, uh, the Pixar movie that was also seen to be, uh, you know, a potential marquee title in the Thanksgiving corridor this year, uh, to to VOD as well. So while Soul will open on movie screens in markets in which Disney Plus does not already have a foothold, anywhere that Disney Plus does exist, Soul will release on Christmas Day as part of the subscription package, not even like uh, Disney did with Mulan, which had a $30 price point. Soul, you'll just be able to watch uh, if you're already a Disney Plus subscriber. And as we are recording this, Disney is announcing that they are, in fact, reframing their entire business around the idea of streaming, the full ramifications of which are yet to be seen because the the deal is literally being announced as we record. It's just, it's insane sort of stepping back and sort of realizing that all of these things happened in the last week, so many different players involved. Obviously, the, the news of Seoul going straight to, uh, to SVOD, not even PVOD, I think was so shocking. The one trade publication in the United States uh, exclusively focused on theatrical exhibition, Box Office Pro, put Seoul on the cover of its next issue. I will take responsibility for that because we were assured by the studio that it was not going to bypass theaters altogether. Lo and behold, two days before the issue hits the mail, this happens. Um, and I think along with it is a very passionate editorial in the magazine that I now cannot take back, uh, congratulating Disney's commitment to, uh, to theatrical releases. I think by December 10th, which is when we're going to find out what that structure of the Disney new streaming ecosystem is going to be, uh, I think by that point, uh, we'll get to see really what, what's in store for the next months years in the entire time that we've been covering this russ uh through this podcast actually this is probably the the most unstable and probably most treacherous part of the reopening wouldn't you agree oh absolutely in my lifetime i have certainly seen the theatrical business undergo massive massive changes but they all happened over the course of years and we are now experiencing upheaval and change that is probably, you know, in the largest scheme of things may not be exactly unprecedented, but it's happening so quickly that it's very difficult to take stock of uh, what it will mean because we just haven't had a chance to see any of this play out in real time yet. In light of that, as we sort of see different companies uh, sort of step back and figure out how to move forward, how to respond to a lot of this news that, that's happening on the podcast. There was a reason why we sort of gave a very general overview last week in the first 10 minutes with, with Rebecca on the basic facts, right? We wanted to sort of see 
how some of the reactions would fit in. Since then, we have the CEO of View International, uh, one of the biggest uh, film circuits in the world, certainly one of the biggest in the UK, openly admitting, Tim Richards, the, the president and, and co-founder of View, that they are actively exploring and considering flexibility on theatrical exclusivity. Rolando Rodriguez, the, the new chairman of the National Association of Theater Owners that is joining us in an interview shortly, uh, he also commented uh, by saying that his circuit, Marcus Theaters, the fifth largest in North America, isn't convinced by the promise of shortened windows. Uh, you know, any data that he's seen sort of reinforces the point that it's it's not the best deal, but that there might be some op- some room to, to, to begin seeing what sort of flexibility can exist, at least during this pandemic recovery around windows. So we're seeing these sort of statements from, from figures that are either accepting the, the change of, uh, of that flexibility of windows, such as AMC, those that are beginning to consider it, like View, folks like uh, Rolando from, from Marcus saying, hey, we're not convinced yet. We're looking at things temporarily. And then on the other end of the spectrum, uh, Cineworld, that has always been very, very vocal about not accepting any title that does not adhere to theatrical exclusivity. And I don't think it's also a coincidence that next on the market, the two releases in the United States are universal titles, The Crudes, uh, A New Age, and Freaky, two titles that well, I really can't say what sort of uh, exclusivity when they're going to follow or not. But at the end of the day, Cineworld takes an action based on a release calendar with three universal titles in the immediate range. Very, very interesting to see not only their reaction, but everybody else's. Russ, we, we, we've talked about this in the past in terms of the big sort of shifts that we're seeing, at least with the Disney thing, which is a, a completely separate part of the narrative, but probably an even bigger part of the narrative. Because if Disney makes any sort of long-standing decision based on their distribution plans concerning cinemas, that will render any changes to theatrical exclusivity really largely null and void. What do you think that Disney's sort of review of its uh, content distribution plans sort of signals for exhibition? So what I think we're most likely to see happen is something that, ironically, Universal was actually considering doing a decade ago. So 10 years ago, Universal bought into Ron Howard and Brian Grazer's adaptation of Stephen King's massive fantasy cycle, The Dark Tower, which is several novels long. It even touches on other King properties. And at the time, the idea was to do a couple of movie adaptations with uh, TV series, like these standalone single-season series in between the movies to tie it all together. And 10 years ago, this was radical. It was like, nobody has done this. How are you going to do this? Today, of course, it seems a lot more likely. And in fact, I think that that's probably a pretty good indication of the sort of direction we're going to see Disney taking with a lot of their IP. Uh, If you take something like Star Wars, you take Marvel, some of those big... IPs, which have done a lot to prop up Disney's theatrical returns over the past few years. I think what we're likely to see is the occasional theatrical release for Star Wars, maybe even still multiple annual Marvel releases, you know, two or three cinematic films. And those things connected 
with TV series like The Mandalorian, which starts its second season on Disney Plus uh, later this month. Marvel and Disney have uh, a number of TV series which are going to be hitting Disney Plus over the next six months. And I think those sort of things are going to end up being test balloons for the possible future for Disney. It's way too early to say, oh, Disney is out of theatrical exhibition. And to be honest, I'd be surprised if they were going to do that ultimately. But I think if you look at it going down the road, what we're looking at five years from now, I think we're going to end up seeing something where Disney is trying to use content on one side of the service to push audiences into a different experience, which is theatrical, and then push them back to Disney Plus and streaming uh, to get the rest of the story. And, you know, is that going to be the model for everybody going forward? I don't know. Not many places have the sort of IP uh, catalog that Disney does to leverage such a strategy. But I think from Disney, that's almost certainly going to be what we're going to see. That sounds like following the plot to like the big sleep, which I've never been able to sort of decipher, you know, and that's just, what is it? 90 minutes, two hours of a film. Great thing. The great thing about the big sleep is that I think everybody involved with the big sleep admits that, yeah, they don't know what happened either. You know, (laughs) the big sleep being a fantastic uh, adaptation of a Raymond Chandler novel with uh, Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall. They reshot a bunch of it after Lauren Bacall became a bigger star was delayed. There are two different versions of the movie because there was one version released before World War II and previews, and then the other one came out, I think, 1946. Amazing movie, but yeah, it's weird and you don't know what's going on. And the point is <laughs> it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what's happening right. in Big Sleep. You're there to watch Bogey and Bacall and everything else, and it's like, oh, the story? Yeah, I guess I care. A bunch of people are trying to put a con over on other people, and yeah, okay, great. Show me the movie stars. And that's basically what we could say about these sort of cinematic universes. I have no exactly. idea what's happening in this Marvel thing. There's like different worlds. There's time travel. I, you know, sure. You know, just, you know, tell me a couple of jokes and, uh, you know, I'm just in there to, to have a good time. But again, this sort of decision puts, I think, an industry that depends on a stream of product, of content, to sort of, uh, as a sort of lifeblood, to, to sort of sustain right. itself. I think this move from Disney and similar moves from different studios really puts a certain type of sector in exhibition at risk. And unfortunately, I think it's the sector in exhibition that depends and lives and dies by IP. IP that they don't own, IP owned by global corporations, IP that is very easy to market. Not, it's not very difficult to sort of you know sell a, an Iron Man movie or an Avengers film or a Star Wars title. It makes everything that used to be just sort of plug and play into this industry and throws it out. Ultimately, yes, that's going to affect a whole bunch of folks. Yes, that is a very negative thing. But looking at the positive side, there is a sector in exhibition that doesn't rely on IP to sustain itself, doesn't rely on IP to sort of survive and find its way out of a crisis. And I think little by little, over the last couple of years, several circuits have identified that weakness in sort of seeing how many audiences are coming in through these super mega franchises and the need to sort of diversify that. So they just don't rely on one studio or franchise altogether. Part of that is our guest today, Rolando Rodriguez. 
Rolando is a veteran exhibition. Uh, he's worked for a number of major circuits uh, in the past. Since 2013, he's headed Marcus Theaters, the number five circuit here in North America. Last week, he was elected chairman of the National Association of Theater Owners. And like myself, Rolando is from Latin America, originally born in Cuba, growing up in the United States uh, after moving there as a child. His experience in exhibition and in movie going has really informed the Marcus Theater strategy in sort of seeing how it can grow without being tied to just one type of film and one type of audience. Rolando, thank you so much for joining us. I remember, I think last time we saw each other in person was at uh, the Geneva Convention last year on September 15th, I believe. And uh, you came up to me before a panel we were doing and you you asked me, do you know what day it is? And instinctively I said, oh, of course, it's, it's Mexican Independence Day. And uh, you corrected me. You said, well, yes, it is Mexican Independence Day, but it's also Hispanic Heritage Month. And uh, it was an interesting sort of exchange because it, it sort of reminds me of how this very important sort of month to sort of celebrate uh, un unification, really, of all Latin American and, and Hispanic people in the United States. Sometimes we have a tendency, even within our own community, both of us being Latin American, to even overlook it amongst ourselves. And that's that's really a missed opportunity, I think, for, for a number of reasons. So with, with that sort of preface, uh, I wanted to just start off and, and ask you, what sort of role do Latin American audiences play in our industry? You know, I think uh, to give a little backdrop in, into your question, I think it's, it's uh, number one, the uh, Hispanic and Latinos play an incredible part obviously in our industry and in particular when you think about the fact that almost one in every four customers that come through the door happen to be of Hispanic or Latino heritage and you know the reason that we're now coming to an end on Hispanic Heritage Month which you know they from September 15th will end on October 15th you need to take into consideration what makes that month so special and it's it, it was really started by the fact that there were seven countries that basically uh, celebrated celebrate this day right around the period. But it wasn't necessarily just locked in on those seven countries. It's about the fact that we have to pick a month that basically Latinos and Hispanics would be able to celebrate the richness of our culture and the fact that we play an incredible, not only economic, labor force and consumer base in the United States. And so the month of September 15th through October 15th plays an integral part in our communities, in our country, and frankly, in our industry. And so here, for once, you have a culmination of the Independence Day being celebrated by Central America, South America, and Mexico, countries from all three of those areas that became very, very significant. What's actually, I think, exciting to see is the dialogue that's starting to take place in our country relating to, obviously, diversity and inclusion and the impact uh, that it makes, not only, uh, you know, to do the but economically what it means for our country. Well, when you think about Latinos and Hispanics, the fact that we represent almost 60 million people in the United States and the fact that we are 18% of the population and growing rapidly, there's general feelings that we could be as much as 30% of the population within the next 
you know, potential 10 years, that's a significant number of the uh, workforce, the leadership in the future, and the consumerism in the future. And by the way, in our industry, we've been able to recognize that already when one out of every customers that comes through the door happens to be a Hispanic and Latino. Again, great way for a country to learn about the culture, the background, and also the potential economic impact that not only we represent today, but will be in the future. You know, it, it's it's great that you bring that up because I think that's, that's another point of, of this industry that can be often overlooked is that last year alone, 25% of all tickets sold were sold to Hispanic and Latin American audiences. And in, in terms of frequent moviegoers, meaning our our best uh, our best customers, the customers that come more often and most enthusiastically, the Latin American moviegoers over-indexed in terms of their share of the general population in terms of that uh, frequent moviegoer. So I, I believe we're right now around 18% of the general U.S. population, but that Latin American audiences represent 26% of that frequent moviegoer. That's more than any other ethnic group by quite some distance. Without question. And I think that's, that's another very important statistic that sometimes we overlook, right? And, and if you think about our industry, obviously we're facing tremendous challenges as we speak right now, not only in our country, but in our industry surrounding the virus that we're dealing with and obviously the economic conditions and the social unrest that's taking place. But if you bring it back and ideally in hopefully more normal times that I know that we will get to as a country and as an industry, it's important to recognize hopefully play a bigger role in what this particular month represents, not only in our country, but in our industry. And so, you know, when I think about diversity inclusion, there's been an incredible positive movement that's taken place in our industry relating to women being recognized, right? Behind the camera and in front of the camera, and in particular in leading role. I'm very proud to see as a father of four amazing uh, women. It's also great to see that you're now starting to see much more representation from the African and, and black communities, which again is a tremendous improvement necessary, and they are a huge also part of the movie going population. But I, I still see that we lack, you know, in our industry pertaining to the improvements that are necessary on seeing Hispanic, you know, actors and directors and, and producers. And by the way, even in leadership positions within, uh, you know, within the film studios and frankly, within exhibition itself. Right. And, mm -hmm. and how do we as a as a collective industry that over index for a reason we over index because we play a product that's family oriented, that relates to the consumer basis, that relates to all consumer. Right. And as you relate to all consumers, I think it's important that we also see ourselves, that our kids are able to see themselves on the screen. I think that that was the beauty of the movie Black Panther that came out, that actually, you know, kids could sit there and say, oh my God, that hero looks like me, and I could be that person someday. And it's, it's a great way to create not only inspiration to drive aspiration 
into, you know, into our communities and see our communities rise in leadership positions, in acting positions, in political positions, uh, in, in board of director positions. And by the way, these are areas that unfortunately, not only all diverse communities continue to lag in, uh, and I see that the state of California is taking some interesting steps uh, to correct that. But frankly, it shouldn't even be, uh, I think, governmental driven. It should be the fact that it's the right thing to do uh, to recognize the consumer base, recognize where the consumer base growth is going, and then try to understand the relationship of that consumer with individuals that can kind of mirror those communities and provide guidance, direction and recommendations on how their product can best connect. You know, it, it's interesting you bring that up, uh, even within the industry, right? Because it's not only about representation in, in films, although that plays a, a hugely influential role, uh, I think, as we can both uh, personally attest to. But beyond that, if, if I'm looking even at my own career, I'm working right now as the first Latin American editor of a trade publication that's 100 years old. I'm the first in 100 years. I think that's, I mean, even for me, that's a little bit uh, alarming to sort of step back and, and, and realize that. If I see even in journalism, there's, there's a small community of, of B2C uh, writers uh, that cover this industry, very talented, all of them. But when it comes to B2B trade reporting, very few. Uh, very few. Now, in exhibition, we have a little bit more of representation, obviously, because you've seen the sort of growth of some of these Latin American circuits and, and U.S. circuits sort of see a growth of, of their own Latin American executives through that overseas expansion. We have seating companies, we have uh, vendors uh, all over this industry where you see these influential uh, Latin American and Hispanic executives. At the studio level, however, it, it is quite a bit alarming that, that we just, we really don't see that at all. What do you think is, is, is left for there to do so we can see more of that diversity that we're seeing in other sectors of the industry sort of spread to the distribution side, to the studio side, and hopefully then uh, get us a little bit more programming for the Latin American audiences? I think those are all very good questions, and I'll try to kind of give some general summations here. But I I would start out, Daniel, by saying that, uh, you know, even in exhibition, you know, as you noted, we have been very fortunate that you see some uh, effective leaders and companies that are owned by Hispanics. But if you think about them, they're outside of the United States. Right. 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 So even within exhibition, uh, which we happen to be the most fruitful, right, mm -hmm. singular in the industry, right, that generates you know, over $11 billion in a record year, obviously, in 2019, that we in the U.S., which is obviously a melting pot and there's 60 million Hispanics, you could rival that in the numbers of Hispanics in most countries, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think Los Angeles and, and, uh, and Chicago are some of the largest cities in terms of uh, Mexican population, you know, and they exist outside of Mexico, obviously. I think you could say that for a lot of uh, Latino populations in the United States. Exactly. And so when you think about it, right, I, I'm very fortunate and grateful that I happen to be, you know, uh, a Hispanic uh, Latino CEO uh, that represents the fourth largest company in the, the United States. But aside from that, if you take the survey and even in the top 20, 
you will not find any others. And it's interesting because we obviously represent one in every four, right? Mm-hmm. Um, walks through the door. So it's really interesting that that happens. But, you know, it, it's beyond just looking at the CEO level, right? How many CMOs and how many COOs, how many CIOs? And so it's about leadership. And then if you take it broader and say, well, how many Hispanics sit in board of director positions, right, in the United States of public companies? And then that number gets really small. I mean, it's less than 2%. And you start thinking, oh, my God, that really gets low. So going back to your uh, initial question, I think that there's still a lot of work to be done, not only in exhibition, but clearly with our partners in the film companies that have been basically, uh, you know, I think they're starting to make changes. I think that there's clearly awakening that's happening through the social dialogue that's happening. But I think it needs to be a balanced approach. I think that they made good progress in female leadership, which is, again, I, I, I applaud them. I think it's fantastic that they've done that. I think that they're starting to really move significantly and how do they improve in African-American and, and black Americans represented in their senior leadership ranks. But there's no question that there's a tremendous gap uh, associated in our film and distribution partners that relates to Hispanics and Latinos. And, and that is, I think, you know, what comes first? We're, we're, we're talking about, is it the cart or the horse? Right? <laughs> yes. You know, you, you start thinking about that and you go, well, if we have really very little to no representation in the artist, right? And, and the artist can't really influence the leadership that's supposed to be guiding the companies or leadership in the companies, right? That can then further influence the fact that you have more Hispanic artists, you know, participating. It seems like we don't have the cart nor the horse at this point. <laughs> and, and so, you know, you're right. There's absolute work to be done. I think that, you know, at NATO, uh, we started the Diversity and Inclusion uh, Committee. There's a lot of good work that's being done that represents, by the way, all diversities. We're not just about one diversity, but mm-hmm. all. But I think the, the level of awareness, I think that we need to ask our friends and partners in the distribution and film companies to, to ask themselves, are we properly representing our consumer base at our leadership positions, at our board of director positions? You know, are we taking that into account when we start thinking about the creative community and the product that we're actually delivering. Uh, look, I, you've heard me say this many times, as you and I have spoken before, I'm still waiting for a theater Latino. Right? <laughs> One of these days, Rolando, I'm hoping. Only in theaters, of course. Exactly. So I'm, I'm really trying as hard as possible. Uh, how do we push that narrative and the importance of it so our young, you know, Hispanic kids and Latinos that are that are growing up that can look up at that screen and say, oh, my God, that could be me. You know, that could be me someday. And uh, and it's not in terms of becoming a superhero. It's the fact that you can reach greater heights. Mm-hmm. That's really the message behind it. That if you know, obviously, you're not going to become a superhero. But, you know, the idea behind it, that you can strive to become, you know, um, uh, strive to better your life, strive to better the lives of your communities, because as you do better, Ideally, you help influence your communities and move your communities forward. 
Yeah, and I, I think part of that, as you mentioned, is is having a frank conversation with people and letting them know that this Latin American Hispanic population isn't something that is just limited to several cities or or key markets in the U.S. I think sometimes a a national conversation ends up being misplaced as a regional conversation. Uh, you know, for example, I think your career is is very telling in in just how national of the conversation is when it comes to Hispanic audiences and and the role that this plays. Uh, so a little bit of a side in this for our listeners. Uh, I, I grew up as a as an expatriate from Mexico, living in different countries. Obviously, going to the movies as a, as a constant companion. But I moved to the United States uh, really to live continuously, mostly as a teenager to Miami, which we all know Miami has a huge Spanish speaking. Massive yeah. Hispanic population. Actually, it, during your days at, at AMC, I think you'd mentioned it to me before, Orlando. You actually opened the movie theater, AMC Sunset Place Twenty Four, where I had my first date. Uh, I went to go see Toy Story Two at that at that cinema that you uh, that you opened during your AMC days. So you knew very well for many years uh, just the power of this Hispanic audiences. Now, when you come back into the industry at Marcus Theaters, which is in the Midwest, which might not be, Milwaukee might not be one of those places where maybe most people in the coasts associate with a Hispanic or Latin American population. What were your findings? What did you sort of discover as you entered into this wonderful uh, circuit with a lot of history in that region? Well, first of all, I will tell you that uh Daniel, you just made me feel really old now. <laughs> <laughs> well, what if I had my first date much later in life? Would that, would yeah, that yeah. feel better? That, that'll make me look bad instead. <laughs> you know, Sunset was a great theater along with Aventura Mall and Kendall. And I just remember those beautiful theaters and the Hispanic heritage in those theaters. It was it was truly remarkable and it still is to this day. So it's, it's great to, to, you brought back some fun memories. <laughs> I think it's really interesting because back in those days, right, when you went on your first date, you probably would have said, you know, what are the what are the states and cities that you can name where the Hispanic concentration would exist? Right. And you would say Miami. You would say Florida. Right. You would say Illinois and in particular Chicago. Mm -hmm. Right. A Texas and in particular Houston, you know, somewhat Dallas. Right. In San Antonio. You would uh, obviously talk about California, right, and, and, and its influence on that. And then, uh, you know, some in Colorado, and then you would talk about Arizona, right? Think about this, because I'm now talking, frankly, oh, my God, I'm going to date myself here, but it's over 20 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. And so you think about then, and you now think about now. And now is almost 60 million Hispanics in the United States. And so now you talk about Hispanics in Kansas City, you talk about Hispanics in St. Louis, you talk about Hispanics in Minnesota, you talk about Hispanics, you know, uh, more representation in Colorado, Hispanics in Nebraska. Yes, Hispanics in Milwaukee. And here's the deal in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, when I first joined the company over seven years ago, that was kind of a, a, a movement that was starting to happen. Now, interestingly enough, through our, you know, I, I represent, the, I'm the chairman of the Hispanic Collaborative in, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And we do a lot of research in this. And it just so happens, Daniel, that in the past decade in Milwaukee, the reason the entire state of Wisconsin has shown a population growth 
is thanks to Hispanics. If Hispanics would not have been there, there would have been a decline in population in the entire state of Wisconsin. And so it is the most rapidly growing population base in the state of Wisconsin, in Milwaukee, in the southern portions of, of Wisconsin. And it's accounting for the fastest growth. Now, think about the importance of that. The importance of that is consumerism, if you're a business. The importance of that is workforce. The importance of that is the age group, which, by the way, Hispanics and Latinos happen to represent the youngest average age in America. We happen to represent the highest percentage of millennials. We happen to represent the highest percentage of Generation Zs. And so if you think about the future growth, right, that's going to represent consumers, it's going to represent leaders, it's going to represent workforce, right? And it's going to represent, uh, you know, our political guidance as business leaders. We would be, you know, stunned or not thinking correctly, forward looking strategically about what this means to us. And again, this is not to discount all the other diverse populations by any means, because Asians are growing and so are, you know, the uh, African-Americans and blacks. But we happen to be the fastest rate. And we happen to be, by the way, the largest number of ethnic minority in the entire United States. 60 million Mm -hmm. Uh, blacks and African-Americans represent 36 million. So these are great populations that. When people of color come together, when black and brown come together, this represents a tremendous, tremendous consumerism, leadership development, forward-looking aspects for all consumers to, you know, and all businesses to be thinking about. And that's that's such an interesting point that you raise, and and I think it also relates a little bit to to what you were saying that it's not just at the CEO level, right? It's it's in other sort of positions of, of influence, uh, like at the CMO level or the CIO or CTO level. For example, I think it's interesting when we talk about uh, the sort of experience of minorities or, or of underrepresented folks here in the United States, it's not that these are monolithic audience blocks that are just going to to movies that that represent them. They help, of course, you know, we'll, we'll go see them. Uh, we'll go see Coco. But uh, at the same time, I think Latin Americans, we, we buy tickets to every movie out there. As you said, that, that one in four is a very telling sign. I think it's one of those things that, that when we start talking about bringing these audiences back to the cinema in this sort of very difficult recovery effort, we really should be asking ourselves, am I doing enough to communicate with this Hispanic audience that overrepresents in terms of frequent moviegoers? Am I reaching them? No matter where you live in the United States, because it is a national conversation, are you doing enough for any title to sort of make sure that they know your cinema is open and that you're programming it? Uh, A great example about representation being part of the conversation, but not all of it on a cross-cultural level is what's happening in China right now, where uh, a, a major title like Mulan isn't finding the traction that it thought it did. And you'll have a title uh, with Hispanic heritage like Coco easily outgross uh, Mulan within the Chinese market. I think people like finding cross-cultural content and like relating to it. They just need to know that it's out there. Yeah, look, I, I think it's. Uh, I, I think you hit it right on the mark. I I think we're we're missing the fact that 
you know, when you think about Hispanics, right, and how do you market to Hispanics, and, and the fact that we're ending the Hispanic Heritage Month, right? And I know that there's a lot of other topics that are currently going on in, in the world, right? But think about this. How much have you seen in any level of the media discussing Hispanic Heritage Month? Mm-hmm. And, and very little to none. And, and so we missed a tremendous opportunity in a time period that we're, we're talking a lot about diversity and inclusion that we missed this particular gap, right? Uh, you know, when I think about it, as you know, I'm a, I'm a Cuban-American, was born in Cuba. And how I grew up, Daniel, is I grew up watching movies from across the world. Mm-hmm. I grew up watching, right, because the movies I couldn't watch were actually from the United States, by the way, uh, <laughs> because they were blanked out. But I grew up watching Chinese films, Japanese films, Canadian films, right, German films, Spaniard films, films from Mexico, films from South America. And for me, the beauty of our industry and what we represent is that we provide an education and other views of cultures that you could normally not get if you're not able to travel, right? Mm-hmm. And so for me it was, oh my God, you know, I grew up watching samurai movies <laughs> and I grew up watching judo movies, you know, and in French film, by the way. So what an incredible richness that we have as an industry. And then how do we relate that to a consumer base that appreciates it? So when I think about myself and my background, uh, you know, growing up in Cuba, why do I love the movies so much? Well, I can tell you that my parents and I, every Sunday, we went to the movies. Every Sunday. That was our outing. No matter what, we as a family went to the movies. And we watched all different types of movies, as you just stated. And so we have an incredible audience space that's very, very uh, loyal to our product. And in fact, it's an audience base that really relates to loyalty of brands and brands that actually represent them well and recognize them. When you recognize, you know, uh, Hispanics within your product, it, it definitely has a relationship with their ability to make sure that they stay loyal to you and they keep coming back. So it's my hope that as we continue this conversation, you know, on diversity and inclusion and the role of Hispanics and Latinos in America and Hispanics and Latinos related to our industry and exhibition and distribution, that we see that there's an incredible opportunity for us to build a business uh, and an incredible opportunity to do the right thing, right? So you're doing both. You're doing the right thing and making sure that you're connecting with your audiences, you know, on the right thing to do. And then you're also connecting with them, you know, with uh, with their product, uh, with your product cycle, and building their loyalty base. Absolutely, no, I, th- I think that's uh, that's wonderfully put, Rolando. And, and part of that is sort of reinforcing habits that 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 and customs that, that people might come into the the market with, right? And in in Latin America, it's it's very customary to have a, a discount day in the middle of the week, uh, you know, in different countries, it's Tuesday and some other places it's Wednesday. And I found it very curious. Um, I believe when was it around seven, eight years ago, if I'm not mistaken, right as you're starting, um, coming back into the industry with Marcus, you do something similar by introducing this sort of discount day where it was a $5 Tuesday, if I'm not mistaken, it was a $5, uh, ticket with, uh, I think a, a small concessions item. 
Um, what was your experience in sort of seeing that and sort of opening that up? Did you see a different sort of engagement in appealing to these pre-built customs that a lot of Hispanic audiences might already be familiar with and introducing them into your circuit? Without question. I, I think we, uh, uh, look, we had a fantastic reception. We introduced this product just slightly over seven years ago. and We introduced it as a $5 Tuesday. And by the way, with free popcorn, actually, we wanted our studio partners to recognize that we were putting our skin in the game as well. And, and, and the reason behind it was, uh, you know, if you think about over seven years ago, there were still, you know, economic challenges at that point in time. And we thought, hey, here's a way and an introduction that have been done throughout the course of the world that have worked well. And we introduced it and it was very, very well accepted almost immediately. Uh, it also related, obviously, to all diverse markets, right? Mm-hmm. But the most, the most thing that... Uh, that really impacted me both personally and professionally through this, Daniel, was the fact that we figured out very quickly that we found an audience that we had lost, right? Mm. Many of those audiences are diverse audiences because the one that we found is those underserved communities, right? Right. The underserved communities with limited income and economic basis to take their families anywhere for any type of form of entertainment. And all of a sudden, I'm getting letters and calls from moms and saying, thank you. You know, I'm now able to take my family to the movies and thank you for the popcorn. And then they would buy a drink or something. Right. But now for a very economical basis, these folks were able to, you know, enjoy an outing with their family. And I have to tell you, that was personally rewarding for me on both not only personally, but also professionally. Right. To see that I felt at one in time shared with our team, we're doing not only something that's right, it's right because we're actually now introducing communities that weren't able to get any type of entertainment out there to actually be able to take their families out for a fun evening. And at the same time, we actually created a very exciting day that does a lot of business, you know, because we found this lost audience that has stopped going to the movies. Oh, thank you so much for for sharing that and, and really this entire conversation. I think it's always it's always good to to be able to connect and, and chat about some of these ideas, and especially right now, is is we're facing a a very difficult part of the reopening phase, this initial reopening cycle uh, with a lot of changes, a lot of things outside of our control. It's uh, it's a sort of important lesson to remember that we've gone through some of these challenges as an industry. And and as you note, Rolando, at the heart of this is reconnecting with a lost audience. That's probably the biggest lesson I take from these conversations. And these are lessons that once you engage with these conversations around diversity, around inclusivity, they can really apply for a number of different scenarios, including this COVID recovery. Yeah, and look, I, when I think about this, Daniel, it's it's very interesting because obviously this is a very difficult time period in our country, and obviously we're dealing with a horrible virus. Uh, and as it relates to our industry, you know, uh, we're going through a challenging time of figuring out, you know, going back to my heritage, uh, you know, uh, uh, comment, you know, which one comes first, right? And so right now. We have theaters open, but we lack the film product. 
And, and I know that our film partners are obviously trying to figure out from their end when is the right time to release the film product. In our end, on the exhibition side, we're fighting hard to make sure that we can keep these theaters open. And obviously, you've noted some of the ones that have recently closed. But here's the reason of what we're possibly missing something, right? As we talk about, you know, uh, diversity and inclusion, and we talk about, you know, the Hispanic Heritage Month and the importance of audiences, we provide an escape to people. And I think that what NATO has done through Cinema Staple, what every one of our theater chains have done, what Marcus Theaters has done, we've all spent a great deal of time in our planning, in our systems, in our processes to make sure that people understand the safety procedures and in keeping in mind the health and safety of not only our customers, but our associates of critical importance. In fact, there isn't a case that can be traced to any theater at this point in time. And so... We need to obviously get started. We need to get started for a couple of reasons. The first one you would say, well, there's the business aspect of it, right? Because obviously theaters need to be able to be open and film companies need to release their films. But there's a bigger picture here. And that bigger picture is, let's go back to what I just said previously. There's an underserved community out there that not only is struggling economically, right? But they have no outlet of any time of form of entertainment. <laughs> and, and we provide that. We actually provide that as an industry. We provide that form in a time period where I think our communities, our consumers, all of the consumers out there are looking for a way to actually smile or have a healthy laugh, right? Or, or a healthy cry <laughs> <laughs> on the screen. And we provide that. And so I think it's incumbent on government officials, it's incumbent on our film partners and our, and our distribution partners, and it's incumbent on ex exhibition to ensure that we work together to make sure that this incredible art form that services all communities, all communities, all diverse communities, that we actually stay in business and are able to thrive and cater to those consumers. So we have a lot of work to do on that and hopefully in a short period of time. And thanks again to Rolando Rodriguez for joining us this week. And thanks to Daniel for putting that interview together. Uh, the Box Office Podcast is produced by recordeditpodcast.com. This episode was largely written by Daniel Luria and narrated by Daniel and me, Russ Fisher. We will be back next week, and whatever the news happens to be, we will pick it apart and uh, try to give you the most important points. Thank you, as always, for joining us, and we will see you again.